0: Here with Fay Eckler, the vice president and a founding member of the Socialist Rifle Association, located currently in Los Angeles. Did I get that right? Yes. All right, excellent. So, uh, it's been a crazy couple weeks for the socialist left. Um, are you guys ready to storm the DNC or what? <laughs>
1: Uh, it's definitely, uh, definitely having flashbacks to 2016. Uh, I think, I think some folks might be planning to go to the convention, but man, I I don't know if I can make it up to Wisconsin.
0: Oh man, like the, the democratic convention?
1: Yeah. Um, as I understand, a bunch of communist groups are organizing a rally. We haven't endorsed it yet, but, um, there's, there's stuff brewing up there.
0: Interesting. Very Interesting. Um yeah, it's it's fucking crazy, man. I was just canvassing in New Hampshire. Um I'm like kind of an electoral skeptic. I don't I I'm, I'm sort of agnostic on the relationship that the Bernie Sanders campaign may or may not have to the project of social revolution and building socialism, but on the off chance that it might have a helpful relationship, I'm engaging in it and hoping for the best.
1: I'm going to pay attention uh, up until March 3rd, which is when the California primary election is. And then after that, I'm going to focus all my attention back on more radical stuff. Once the primary is passed for me, uh, that's that's about it. I'm not going to drive to another state. Uh, I drove to Nevada in 2016, back when I was a social Democrat and helped out then. But, you, you know, it's... Yeah, I'm in it till March 3rd, and then what happens, happens.
0: I think that's a very reasonable and generous position for an anarcho-communist like yourself to have.
1: Well, you know, uh, I endorse a variety of tactics.
0: Excellent. It takes all kinds. Okay, so how about some basic-ass questions to start us out? Um, your Twitter display name right now is Arm Trans Women Disarm Cops. I think we here at the Intifada definitely co-sign that sentiment. What's your plan to do that? And what would be the benefits there?
1: For sure. So uh, in terms of plans uh, <laughs> for, for right now, um, mostly uh, organizing the SRA and making sure that we have a very, um, you know, very sort of intersectional feminist approach to socialist politics, you know, um, definitely, Trying to create a safe place for queer identities for you know anyone who's not you know um, a cis white man, which is the majority demographic for most uh, gun owners in America, and so I think we've been pre- pretty successful at that with the SRA. Um, transgender uh, membership is north of ten percent. Uh, around forty percent of our members are LGBTQ. Um, we're probably aside from dedicated lgbtq gun orgs like pink pistols were probably one of the gayest uh gun organizations in the country and probably one of the uh queerest socialist organizations as well
0: hell yeah that's all very interesting because you're right there is a certain demographic that i would associate with gun owners even on the left probably
1: oh, yeah I- and definitely we can appreciate the contributions of um you know of of that demographic and i don't want to disparage anyone i You know, I think it's really important, especially because there are so many men, you know, who do have experience with guns. And the goal really should be to spread that experience and spread that knowledge around to other people and other groups that might otherwise not have access to it.
0: So can you tell me a little bit about your background and your interest in gun culture, as well as kind of your your political journey like that? That just popped into my head when you said you were a social Democrat in 2016, um, I think a lot of us have had a similar progression, but what's uh, what's your story? In brief, what's your life story?
1: Oh, complicated, but uh, as far as uh, guns go, um, my uh, dad was a uh, gun collector. Um, he started out being a Civil War buff, uh, Get bought a couple of old Civil War muskets, and then he expanded that into... You know World War One and World War Two, and you know uh, British colonial firearms, and you know a little bit into the Cold War, and he put together this really rather large collection of firearms throughout my teens, and I would go shooting with him, and so I got this sort of from a fairly from a fairly young age, like in in my early teens up until maybe I was around 20, I was sort of exposed to that sort of environment and. Absorbed a lot of gun knowledge through osmosis and just you know shooting. So politically, uh, I started out uh, ashamed to admit it as a libertarian. Um, I only avoided voting for Ron Paul by being um, seventeen in two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of embarrassing, but uh, after you know going to college, getting a job, going into the real world, which is Conventional wisdom says is supposed to make you more conservative. Instead, you know, through struggling as a working class person, I started to realize that all that "pick yourself up by your bootstraps" bullshit is just that. And so, uh, around 2015, I started drifting left, picking up more, you know, sort of social democratic ideals. Uh, I got really into the Bernie 2016 campaign for a while, but you know, after the 2016 election, I sort of Lost a lot of faith in uh, electoral democracy. Uh, didn't really seem like a, didn't really seem like it was a good system <laughs> after 2016. And so I started, you know, I'd fallen into um, a few more uh, radical groups. I started reading Marx, Luxembourg, Emma Goldman, and uh, you know other leftist theorists. And I sort of developed a sort of libertarian socialist, anarcho-communist sort of uh, political outlook over time. Um, for a while I called myself a libcom Uh, these days I pretty much call myself an anarcho-communist
0: hell yeah that's very gratifying to hear because um, in my other job on the majority report we get calls from libertarians sometimes and uh, Sam likes to debate them and own them and basically show the stupidity of the right-wing libertarian viewpoint and I am always trying to appeal to the anarchist part of a libertarian in order to move them left, and some people think that that's a fool's errand, but clearly it's not. Clearly, at least if you're like a good faith libertarian who's just maybe interested in liberty and freedom, and, but maybe is a little naive. Um, it's it's always my hope that once people get out into the world and, like you said, experience the private tyranny of capitalism and of bosses, in addition to the tyranny of the state. Um, they start to think in a more uh, radical left kind of way. So that makes me really happy.
1: One of the big turning points for me was I, uh, the the company I was working for, um, in my early twenties sent me to Taiwan for a couple of months. Um, and I, you know, worked with people there and it was, it, it was a really interesting experience. Taiwan is a, you know, really interesting place, but, uh, I observed at one point, uh, the CEO had a meeting with the board of directors for the company, and they had this, you know, got together in the uh, boardroom. And there was a, uh, like a 20 year old girl, who was an assistant, um, who was there in the room to like serve tea, you know, uh, fetch papers, you know, just see to the board members needs. And uh, apparently, she forgot to pull out the CEO's chair at the start of the meeting. So after the meeting was done, he cornered her in his private office and yelled at her so loud that everyone in the office could hear it and yelled at her until she cried. And I think that that was a real turning point, seeing the cruelty that this person who's a multimillionaire, who's, you know, just being a despicable human being and realizing that, you know, it's not really capitalism doesn't really reward merit as a person. It doesn't really reward, you know, um, contributing to society so much as it rewards you know, ruthless cruelty, um, and being willing to crush people uh, for getting in your way. And that was sort of a turning point for me that really sort of shattered that libertarian mindset. And I think if, if more people had that sort of direct exposure to, you know, who the, uh, who the ruling class really are, I think we'd have a lot more, uh, a lot more socialists and communists. And I think maybe social media is starting to contribute to that, why, why everyone's a Marxist now,
0: Oh, absolutely. I think also just the material conditions in which we find ourselves, like millennials, are we grew up, uh, some of us grew up with a certain uh, level, a certain expectation that if you work hard, you can succeed. And then a lot of us ended up on the wrong side of the 2008 financial crisis and found out that that's not necessarily true. And the generation after us is just like fucked they're just like i think sean called them (laughs) climate maoists the other day like they don't care they're like way scarier than we are so i have hope for the future perhaps definitely um so you are a founding member of the socialist rifle association um what, what what was the concept behind starting it and um What are the main things that you guys do? Um are there any socialists in history that you draw inspiration from? For sure. I realized that's like several questions in one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's all right. Um so it was sort of founded with the intent, um so we actually uh sort of took the SRA over from another group who were uh in our views doing a poor job. Um had been doing really like adventurous um, sort of stuff that was getting legal attention uh, and we didn't want to see that blow back on you know innocent people who weren't necessarily involved so um, the group that started the SRA in its current form we basically just felt you know this sort of radical militia actions and you know standing um, you know, showing up to protest armed. That's all very important. It's good praxis. I definitely commend all the groups that do it. But we also felt that there needed to be a space for leftists to, you know, get into gun ownership and become proficient and, you know, explore self-defense and community defense without it being tied to a radical militia group that might attract more attention from feds or from fascists that would have, you know, uh, would, would have, like, uh, a higher need for strict opsec that would have you know a higher need for physical security there needs to be a sort of middle ground where people can learn these skills without being in a high stress environment without having to worry about whether or not uh, interacting with the group is going to get them in trouble and so we sort of envision the sra as um not necessarily like a copy of the nra but sort of like the you know inverse of the nra sort of approaching this how can we do it in like a community-minded fashion focusing on community defense and really you know not just being a lobby group like the nra is and so the sra is we uh created a nonprofit. um we're an educational and advocacy organization <coughs> oh, excuse me we're an education and advocacy organization um with a sort of federated chapter system so we have uh upwards of 40 chapters all over the country we're around three thousand members now i have to check the latest count we're right on the cusp there Um, and uh yeah so in addition to like the firearms training and range days that we organize we also engage in some mutual aid actions and disaster relief we've done uh relief work for a number of hurricanes um hurricane michael Uh, Hurricane Florence, Um, we did a big action uh, for Hurricane Dorian, which fortunately didn't do much damage. Um, And also for uh, a little bit um, for the cleanup effort for Tropical Storm Imelda. Some of our chapters have done work um, helping homeless people, handing out respirator masks uh, during fire season. Uh, A bunch of our northern chapters have done coat drives or, you know, uh, fed the homeless and done other good mutual aid work. You know we sort of take the view that community defense like it's important to be able to defend yourself from physical attacks from fascists or the state or any other source where people are doing physical harm to your community but we also need to protect each other from natural disasters and from the hardships brought on by capitalism so we sort of take a bit of inspiration from the black panthers in that regard you know looking at defense as being an all-encompassing you know, sort of thing, defending ourselves against the hardships in society. Um, and obviously, guns are an important part of that, but we don't want them to be the whole thing, obviously. Um, it's if you make yourself just purely a gun club or if you try to be like a revolutionary vanguard or something, um, that, that really, I think, is too narrow-minded of an approach um, for the sort of community defense that we need to organize.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important uh, because people might not necessarily think of uh, the all the mutual aid and disaster relief when they hear the phrase Socialist Rifle Association, but uh, I, I've been really inspired learning about all the different ways that you guys practice community defense. So I also wanted to ask you a little bit about the concept of mutual aid and how it's different from charity work. Um, I know it's really a, a, an important idea for a lot of anarchist groups especially and anarcho-communist groups um, so what what's the concept there and how does it fit into your uh, overarching theory of change?
1: So I think the main difference between mutual aid and charity and you know, there it can be there can be some overlap there, but I think the main difference is that mutual aid is focused more on trying to change the material conditions that people live in, to so try to undermine uh, systems of oppression. Whereas uh, charity takes more of a you know just throwing money at the problem or just throwing food at the problem. The idea shouldn't be you know. How do we help poor people it should be how do we help poor people with a mind towards improving their situation so that they aren't poor anymore and that can that can be pretty difficult Um, obviously without you know with the resources that most leftists have we can't exactly lift people out of homelessness but rather than um, rather than asking people to interact with uh, institutions uh, like the Red Cross or the Salvation Army Uh, mutual aid i think should be focused much more on directly aiding people without condition you know meeting people where they're at and you know giving them what they need to be able to get through their current situation without an expectation of a particular of them behaving in a certain way or you know reciprocating in terms of expecting people to be you know so oh so thankful for your charity so uh Keeping in mind the limitations that a lot of people have, I do think that there is a, it's sort of a fine distinction because we don't have the capacity yet on the left to do the sort of change, the sort of large scale mutual aid that we need to do. But I think that we can start building that organizational capacity and start get practice, start get getting practice doing those things um, through the organizational work. And so that's part of why we try to work that into what we're doing with the SRA
0: word so i have a really long question in the middle here and i'm just gonna ask this one now um so in in terms of the idea of mutual aid and maybe even uh creating a kind of prefigurative politics of the society that we want to live in um creating infrastructure for needed services outside of the state especially in places where the state's broken down um I believe I could see how that could be empowering for people to develop their own support networks, show that they don't need the bourgeois state to do it. Um, but one criticism I've heard is it maybe it's possible, according to some, that by taking care of these things ourselves, especially within our current, context of you know capitalist society Uh, maybe we're letting the state off the hook or avoiding making demands of the state as we slide further into this neoliberal hell world where a hundred percent of the onus for keeping ourselves alive is on the individual um, and not on you know the state or the welfare state as a whole or whatever Um, so like I guess what's your answer to that maybe it even gets around the need to expropriate resources from the capitalist class how how does expropriation factor into this or maybe it might be better to ask how this dovetails with expropriation right because i don't think that mutual aid needs to be the whole plan for the rev you know
1: yeah i think i don't really approach it from a like you said a prefigurative view of what we think the, you know, socialist society should be. That's not really how I approach it. I look towards it very much from a uh, from an organizational standpoint of how do we learn to behave? How do we learn to organize and self organize in a way uh, without relying on the state? You know, how do we approach politics because you, you can have you know, your expropriation, whether that be through a revolution or you know, through a democratic process or whatever or insurrection or whatever theory of uh, revolutionary change you see, we have to uh, develop the consciousness within people for how to be self-governing, for how to be self-organizing for how to be for learning how to help each other and engage in that mutual aid uh, without capitalist structures or without state structures to organize it for them. So it's it's really sort of practice for the revolution and for after the revolution, however you want to view it. Um, you know, people aren't going to if if you if you expropriate the ruling cr- the, if you expropriate the ruling class if you you know do this sort of huge structural change without people having the experience in how to actually behave in a, as socialists or as anarchists in a post capitalist society. Um, then people, I think, will tend to recreate the structures of the state or will recreate the structures of capitalism and fall back into those systems. I think Emma Goldman spoke to to this a bit. You know, you have to have this sort of radical consciousness in people. And I think uh, engaging in organizing of mutual aid and community defense is an important part of that. because in a, in a society in the society that we want, people will have to organize mutual aid themselves. People will have to organize community defense themselves, unless you're a pure you know Marxist state advocate, which is not necessarily my politics, but that's the sort of approach that I come from. you know we have to learn how uh, we have to learn how to do socialism I, I, there's a Luxembourg quote that I like actually one moment um,
0: Oh, wonderful um you're recording this on audacity too right just making sure
1: yes i am okay i'm so paranoid. Uh, i know there's some I've always, <laughs> know there's i'm always some... i
0: always afraid i'm gonna fuck something up
1: i know there's some uh background noise and such that's okay so uh there's a luxembourg quote that i quite like um in the midst of history in the midst of struggle in the midst of the fight we must learn how to fight we have to learn how to do socialism as we do it. That's no longer Luxembourg. We have to learn how to um, be revolutionaries while also engaging in it. So I think it's a constant process of learning. And uh, I think that the work we're doing in the SRA is an important part of that, encouraging people to develop that sort of consciousness.
0: That makes a whole lot of sense. Um, let, let, let's talk a little bit more about the gun part, because I feel like a lot of people might be stuck on that. Um why Fair well, like, why do you think it's a good idea for socialists to be comfortable and familiar with guns? And um, like, what, what, what purpose do you think it will serve in the short term and maybe the long term as well as we spiral into this escalating series of crises, which seems to be happening, and who knows what? You know maybe Trump loses the election and doesn't want to leave office. I don't know I'm getting ahead of myself well like what what purposes do the guns serve
1: in the short term um I think that firearms are useful as a protest tool because um when a group is armed when you have an armed group, the police are a lot less likely to engage in violence against that group, and that might be kind of surprising to hear but it's worn out repeatedly, um, both for right-wing groups and left-wing groups. So um, there was a uh, rally, um, there was originally going to be a KKK rally uh, in Mm Stone Mountain, Georgia, their big monument to the Confederacy um, sort of thing. Uh, Hundreds of anti-fascists showed up to protest that event, the Klan didn't show, the anti-fascists, you know, burned a Confederate flag and, you know, had their march, and you know they did this in the heart of georgia very rural there were armed police about but they didn't they didn't fuck with the anti-fascists because there were numerous anti-fascists with ar-15s and shotguns you know performing security in and around the crowd and you know police are you know the armed you know police are the armed enforcers of the state but you know they're still human beings they still have lives and families that they want to get back to they you know it's one thing for them to throw tear gas at a protester or hit them with a riot shield but if there's a possibility that someone might shoot back with an AR-15 they're a lot less likely to want to go in and start an incident and uh, there was a similar event um, during the uh, no DAPL uh, Dakota Access Pipeline protests um, there was immense police violence against the uh, against the clean water activists. Um, Immense violence, they fired uh, grenades, essentially, not fragmentation grenades, but, you know, fired grenades into the midst of, uh, and flashbangs into the midst of the protesters. A woman lost, you know, an eye, I believe. Just uh, immense violence, they assaulted people, pointed rifles at people. However, on one one of the days of the uh, no DAPL protests, Uh, there was a uh, protest by a group of veterans, some 500 veterans who showed up in solidarity um, and who uh, were open-carrying rifles. And while the veterans were there, while they were open-carrying, the police fell back, you know, almost half a mile and stood behind their barricades and their armored vehicles, you know, peeking out and looking at this group of armed protesters, and they didn't fuck with them. There was no violence that day. There were no assaults that day against the protesters. Um, once the veterans went home, once there was no longer an armed contingent to that protest, that's when the police violence resumed. And you can see this as well um, with right-wing protests when hundreds, uh, sorry, uh, when tens of thousands of right-wing gun owners showed up in Virginia on January 20th, um armed to the teeth, the police, part of this is the political alliance that the police have with the right wing, but also partially just the sheer volume of guns that are there. The police were completely hands-off with the situation because they didn't want to risk escalating, you know, such a volatile powder keg of armed individuals. They didn't want to risk escalating that into a potentially armed conflict that, you know, could see actual flying lead. So I do think that there is a... uh, a valuable aspect to having firearms present at protests that demonstrates, um, you know, it keep it gets police off of your backs. It you know stops the uh, fascists from being quite as violent, um, and you know in Charlottesville uh, on August twelfth, um, the uh, redneck revolt uh, formed a line to protect a synagogue from being assaulted by neo-Nazis and Confederates. Um, and just the presence of an armed contingent there prevented uh, you know prevented uh, violence against uh, religious leaders so i think there's a lot of value to it as a protest tool i also think it's uh, very important psychologically to have that you know empowerment of knowing that you you know that you own a means of lethal self-defense that you have the ability to defend yourself without calling the police especially keeping in mind that there are a lot of people in minority groups you know, who where calling the police might put them in more danger than they already are. Um, You know, if you're trans, if you're black, if you're, you know, if if you're a group that the police historically mistreat, sometimes having the option to defend yourself without calling the police can help you, or at the very least give you a greater sense of security and, you know, uh, prevent you from getting into a bad situation. So I think those are some of the really good short-term aspects of firearms ownership and proficiency.
0: That's, that's hardening to hear, uh, because I always just assumed that, you know, socialists having guns would be basically useless against uh, any kind of violent arm of the state because we're just so totally outgunned, um. But I mean, I understand why the right would be OK with the cops, because, you know, as we all know, the cops are often sympathetic to the fascists, at least uh, on some sort of tacitly understood level, even if they are obligated to kind of, oh, the sound went away. Interesting. Um, I- even if they're obligated to kind of maintain order when these right wing groups get too out of control. Um, uh, like, like like, the reason that I kind of I mean, I'm I'm very conflicted about this, partly because I was just raised by liberals who hate guns uh, in Connecticut. Like the first time I ever shot a gun was when I was in New Orleans, actually, maybe five or six years back. And if I'm going to be honest, it's always kind of scary for me. I've shot guns a few times since then. I'm like, this is way too easy and fun this thing can be used to kill a person and I just don't trust myself with this responsibility therefore I kind of instinctually don't trust anyone um is that just bourgeois ideology talking like what's going on here you want to psychoanalyze me a little bit
1: (laughs) I don't want to psychoanalyze you I mean I, I I think there may be like ideological aspects to it you know especially you know a lot of White socialists from liberal backgrounds may, you know, feel, oh yeah, I, I can count on the police to protect me. There may be an aspect of that to it, um, but I do think it's important to keep in mind that not everyone needs to own a gun. Not everybody should own a gun. You know, one of the other aspects of community defense and sort of the SRA's approach is, you know, people who don't have, who sh- don't want to own guns or shouldn't own guns, you know, still still need to be defended from the state or from uh, fascists from time to time and so it's important to have you know a segment of the community that is armed that is able to you know uh show up to help people when that's necessary you know to fulfill sort of the platonic ideal of what the police are supposed to be in liberal fantasies Mm -hmm. you know there is like a validity to that and i you know the sra definitely does sort of take that approach we don't we don't push for every person to own a gun we aren't here to sell guns like the nra is uh we really yeah that's that's sort of why we focus on community defense rather than self defense because requiring every single person to bear the burden of defending themselves is not a, is not a healthy society that's not a burden that everyone should bear But it does make sense to have, you know, a segment of society that is prepared to defend themselves and to defend others. And if we can't rely on the police to do that, then it's up for us to organize that ourselves.
0: Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, Like, then I get of a different mind and I'm like, well, you know, maybe people like me who really take violence seriously and understand what it means to have a gun should be the ones taking some of these responsibilities upon ourselves because I I do get a little freaked out sometimes by some of the folks on the left who seem to like fetishize guns a little too much and maybe they're like a little too excited to use them. And I feel like those people are the ones who should not be allowed to have guns.
1: Yeah, fighting against um, LARPers or against people who you know, fetishize violence is, yeah, that's something that we try to do, try to discourage that sort of thing in the SRA. obviously can't screen everyone, but it's, we do very much take the approach that this is a serious responsibility that you need to approach with a responsible adult mindset. Um, And you should have a focus on, you know, if you're going to purchase a firearm, how are you actually planning to use it in a defensive context? And are you approaching it in a responsible way? Are you actually getting the training? Are you aware of the laws? You know, are you a part of your community? Or are you just some you know outsider who wants to show up and take the credit for being a you know for being the cool guy with the gun um, we've actually kicked people out of the organization for expressing those sorts of sentiments it's definitely not something that we it's definitely not something that we tolerate and uh, yeah I I think people I think those people definitely give the armed left uh, a bad name um, and yeah I, d- I definitely think that I think we can do more to get rid of them. And I'd like to push for the SRA to do that more so to now that we've established a left wing gun culture, much more so than existed a few years ago. I think it is our responsibility to police it to an extent to make sure that those sorts of people are not the forefront um, of the armed left.
0: I think like, yeah, um, as someone who talks about revolution quite a bit. I feel like uh, the revolutionary left gets a bad rap sometimes, and we were we are all caricatured as some kind of uh, militaristic—I uh, don't know—tankies who want to use guns to overthrow the armed to the teeth U.S. military, um, which is something that I don't think is ever going to happen. Um, but the re- like the reason why I think it sh- is good that the left. Is getting more comfortable with guns Or should um, Is in the event that the state breaks down And we've already seen this happen In the event of disasters um, And we know that the far right Is ready with their militia groups And the thought of having Them fill any sort Of power vacuum or patrol Any neighborhood Really is like fucking Terrifying to me And part part of me thinks Part of me assumes that like We would just be toast in that scenario and there's no point in even trying uh, looking around at like all of my nice comrades in DSA, you know, they're very, they're very sweet, they're very smart, they're very hardworking, um, but they are not very comfortable with the idea of violence and self-defense, but that might just be a function of living in Brooklyn versus living in a place where there is more of a gun culture already.
1: It's definitely true that we got a lot more DSA members from Midwestern and Southern chapters than we do from the big cities. Um, I do I do agree with sort of looking at, if you are going to look at sort of long-term, big picture uh, views on gun ownership, looking at it in a context of the US state failing uh, as a state, is probably a better context to look at firearms ownership than looking at it as a revolution like a like a leninist revolution or a maoist revolution. I don't think that those are uh realistic at any time in the foreseeable future, but I do think there is a possibility in the next 10 or 20 years that the you know, or you know, maybe 30 or 40 that the United States um, might deteriorate, um might enter, you know, we have all these right wingers talking about boogaloo We have uh, Robert Evans, who did his uh, very good series, It Could Happen Here, about the possibility of a second American Civil War. I don't think that's necessarily the most likely thing to happen in the next 20 years, but it is a possibility. And if it does happen, I can say right now that even with what the armed left has done so far, um, the extreme right is in a much better position to uh, seize large amounts of power than the left is. You know, if you have any sort of revolutionary outlook, if the US government was to fail in the next 10 years, the left would be fucked um, pretty thoroughly. And so honestly, the SRA or something like it should have been started a decade ago. This should have been a long-term project that was ongoing, you know, since before the financial crash. Unfortunately, because of the sort of alliance between the left and liberals, and sort of the liberal approach to gun control, that's not really something that was feasible. So, I again, I don't think that civil war is the most likely thing to happen, but if you are worried about that, uh, then definitely um, the armed left is something that you should um, consider being a part of, and I think that in 10 or 20 years, I think that the left would you know, if we continue to grow at our present rate, but the left at large and the armed lefts, so I think that that would be a bit more of a realistic proposition in the case of a failed state. But I don't, I don't know. I, I can't predict the future.
0: Yeah. Yeah, hope for the best plan for the worst. That's what I say. Okay. You were talking a little bit about uh, cops and infiltrators before. Um, are you ever afraid that by having a openly having a socialist rifle association that you will be some kind of a magnet for cops and government infiltrators. Like I, I feel like this is a, a it's been a problem with not just the arm left, but the entire left throughout history. But I'm, I'm thinking specifically of like the way that the government went after and even murdered some of the black Panthers and m- maybe I mean, they might be doing the same thing again with Black Lives Matter activists. They're not armed, but just just more evidence of how scary the state can be.
1: And, you know, people talk about COINTELPRO a lot, and that's a fear in a lot of people's minds. For what it's worth, I think the FBI going after the Panthers and Black Lives Matter, I think that's motivated more by racism than anti-communism. But it is definitely a valid concern. And uh, so... Like I said, the SRA's approach to that is by being the most boring, civic, above board legal organization that we can be. Um, You know, it's impossible to weed out every potential cop or infiltrator. You know, it's impossible to weed out every potential wrecker or whatever. But our goal is to make sure that if you are participating in the SRA, that there is minimal chance for uh, for people to be caught in entrapment. You know if someone goes around you know advocating we don't we don't allow people to uh advocate for violent actions or you know illegal direct action in, in the sra uh our chapters we forbid them from you know doing open carry protests like we tell them if you wanted we tell people if you want to do this You need to find a different group to do it with you can join the SRA for the education you can join the SRA for the mutual aid but if you're going to if you want to go around carrying a rifle or do something else that could be a cop magnet you should join a different organization that has you know that higher standard of operational security where they're prepared for that We definitely do take OPSEC securely. Uh, Sorry, we definitely do take OPSEC pretty seriously, especially with regards to keeping member information secure. But our approach to dealing with infiltrators is pretty much don't do anything that an infiltrator would be interested in. If you want to get into really radical shit, then join a really, really radical organization. If you're interested in education, if you're interested in mutual aid.
0: Word. That makes a whole lot of sense. Um, okay so let's talk a little bit about gun control legislation um because i i've had some discussions with sam about this my boss on majority report um h- how would you respond or talk to people who think um you know hey we should definitely work on treating the underlying causes of violence in this country and in this world but In the short term uh, restricting people's access to guns as much as possible is the only way to stop mass shootings which happen in this country far more than they happen in the rest of the in the rest of the world um how, how, how would you interface with that
1: i think that's i think that sort of view is coming from a good place you know i think there are good motivations there but i think that the most common models of gun control are actually really bad solutions to those problems So dealing with mass shootings, for instance. So for what it's worth, mass shootings make up a tiny percentage of the total firearms homicides in the US every year. Um, You know, one statistic I like to reference is that more people were killed by cops last year than have been killed in all school shootings in American history combined, Mm -hmm. um, as far back as we have records, by almost double. And so. And additionally, you know, things like assault weapons are account for a ridiculously small percentage of total gun homicides, and even most mass shootings are not committed with AR-15s or uh, what you would call assault weapons. Most of them are committed with handguns. The vast majority of, you know, deaths due to interpersonal violence or criminal violence are due to handguns, you know. So I feel like legislation like assault weapons bans, it sort of is targeting the wrong thing. I don't think it really targets the actual causes of uh, gun violence or mass shootings. I think it mostly is, I think a lot of liberals approach it as a cultural issue that they're just not comfortable with these sorts of weapons and they want them to go away. And I I get that. I understand that impulse, but I don't think that that's really a realistic way to approach the politics of it, Um, especially when we do have so many armed right wingers who are willing to show up in the tens of thousands to a state capital with guns at even the hints that an assault weapons ban might be passed, as happened in Virginia recently. So as far as gun control, like the SRA is not opposed to all forms of gun control. Uh, The sort of uh, rally in Virginia and the uh, gun control measures being proposed there have really caused us to sort of sharpen our critique and sort of focus on what sorts of gun control we support or don't support. I actually went over this recently in the most uh, recent episode of the SRA podcast. Um, But things like uh, universal background checks. There's a good intention there. Like, if someone has a bad, you know, a criminal history, if they've committed violent crimes, that person probably shouldn't own a firearm. However, if you're looking at that as a way of stopping mass shooting, of stopping mass shootings, the vast majority of mass shootings uh, are committed by people with no criminal record at all, with no, you know, uh, people who've never been involuntarily committed or even voluntarily committed. A lot of times these people don't even have, you know, domestic abuse records. They don't have anything in their history that would prevent them from buying a gun in the vast majority of cases. And if you look at it purely from the view of stopping, you know, interpersonal violence and criminal violence, you end up with the fact that because of the racial disparities in our justice system you end up with disparities in uh, access to firearms because the black community is so over policed because black people are arrested at a higher rate convicted at a higher rate given harsher sentences you run into the issue that a strictly enforced background check system is actually going to disenfranchise a greater number of minority individuals than it will you know A lot of the, uh, you know, white right-wing individuals that I think a lot of people think of when they think of gun owners. Of course, there are some forms of gun control that we do get behind. Um, Safe storage requirements, for instance. If you own a firearm and you have children in your home, you absolutely should be required to keep that gun locked and completely inaccessible. I've known people in the South when I lived there who would just keep a handgun in a drawer while they had a you know, eight-year-old child in the house who could access that weapon loaded at any time. That's terrifying. It's irresponsible. I do think that safe storage requirements are a very reasonable form of gun control that should be implemented.
0: As as a socialist, uh, as a socialist, um, I really uh, would balk at any, any kind of gun control laws that beef up the surveillance state Or that target people or will end up targeting people in a racially disproportionate way. Um, And oftentimes uh, that intersects with class as well. Um, I, I am more amenable to gun control measures that go at the capitalists who are making money off the sale of guns and so it's something like an across the board ban on certain kinds of weapons i'm like yeah that sounds reasonable but i'm also not an expert on um whether or not those achieve the desired outcomes
1: yeah and for what it's worth one of the biggest issues that you're always going to run into with gun control is that the vast majority of these laws have grandfathering clauses Um, because oftentimes they're impossible to pass otherwise, and so a grandfather clause means that you can ban the sale of, say, AR-15s, but everyone who already owns an AR-15 is going to be allowed to keep it. So if you ban AR-15s, you have all these right-wingers who already own half a dozen of the guns each, And then you have this small armed left movement that is trying to expand and you know get people able to do this sort of praxis like i was talking about with protests or you know uh, preparing for you know uh, you know preparing for worst case scenarios Um, if you look at it from that perspective you know you're you're basically uh, solidifying the uh, firepower that the far right has and preventing any other group uh, from seeking to be able to challenge that and keeping in mind that the that the police in this country already constitute essentially a right wing paramilitary if you have any like from a purely if you are a revolutionary socialist and then that seems to me to be a very poor tactical decision
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's so it's hard to even wrap my mind around it because like in an ideal world nobody would have guns, but the world we live in now is already full of guns and if that's the case i certainly want my side to have them too because that's that just seems like a practical practical plan uh i i've often said maybe we should start with the cops and disarm maybe the most marginalized people last i think that's a deal that more of us would be willing to take
1: one sort of perspective that i've voiced is that Uh, the police shouldn't have access to any firearms that civilians don't you know here in california uh, we have some very strict gun control measures but almost none of them apply to the police and then we end up with retired or off duty police officers using weapons that are illegal for civilians own to commit murder Um, there was a person in uh, there was uh, a retired LAPD officer who murdered a man in Pomona just a couple years ago Um, he was. Uh, I think he's on trial. I'm not sure. Um, he might have been uh, convicted. I'd need to look up uh, the article. But and uh, another one recently near me was killed in uh, a a, dis- a mentally disabled man was killed by an off-duty officer in uh, Corona, California, in a Costco. So we have this situation where you have the police who have these sort of enshrined gun rights, who have this right to conceal carry even after they've retired you know, who have the right to own AR-15s with high-capacity magazines when normal civilians don't, I think that that sort of enshrines the police as being a, like I said, a paramilitary force where they have access to you know, military or closer to military grade firearms than the public does, and necessarily creates a power imbalance where the police are going to feel that since they have access to these weapons, that they have a right to use them against the general populace, and especially against marginalized communities. So I do think that, you know, I think that a baseline is that the police should not have access to any firearms that a civilian cannot own, there shouldn't be any disparity there. And I do agree that if, if I could snap my fingers and make all the guns in the world go away, I mean, I'd I'd be sad. I enjoy I enjoy shooting. I enjoy I enjoy collecting, but I'd give that up to end all gun violence. I I really would, including including wars, obviously. I'd give that up in a heartbeat, but it's not really feasible, especially in the United States, where we have some three hundred and fifty million civilian-owned firearms for three hundred and twenty million people. Not counting police firearms and military firearms, there are more guns in this country than there are people, and we really have to reckon with that uh, from a policy standpoint when approaching, you know, when approaching firearms ownership.
0: Yeah, it it always blows my mind that uh, centrist liberals like my baby boy Beto uh, would say like, okay, Medicare for all—that's pie in the sky shit. That's never gonna happen, but. I think it is feasible to take everyone's guns away in this country. Like, what the fuck are you talking about?
1: And it's not going to be enforced. There are sheriffs and, uh, you know, rural police departments all over this country who are saying, if if our state government or if the federal government imposes harsh gun control, we're not going to enforce it. And, you know, they're they're not going to enforce it on their right wing white buddies. They are going to enforce it. On immigrants, They're going to enforce it on leftists. They're going to enforce it on black people and queer people. And they're, you know, because it's, there is a political motivation to their firearms ownership. And so, you know, the only way to get rid of all the guns in this country would be a confiscation program on an unimaginable scale and would probably would, would definitely spark a civil war. I think, I think if there is one thing that would spark a civil war forced, uh, you know, forced confiscation of everyone's firearms, even if it's just, you know, assault weapons, air quotes, even if it's just that, I think that that's one of the few things that would be a guaranteed way to start a conflict in this country. And I think that if that happens in the next 10 years, the liberals and the left are going to come out of it uh, much, much the worse for wear.
0: Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, Do you think that the kind of armed left... Can find some common ground With people who might be More conservative when it comes to These issues like I know I was out canvassing for Bernie uh, Over the weekend in New Hampshire and this one Guy there's there's independents out there And this one guy who uh, was an Independent um, undecided voter Was like well I really care about Gun rights and I Got to tell him that Bernie is more Moderate than the other Democrats who were Running certainly on issues of gun control and has taken a lot of shit from the other Democrats about it. Um, The NRA doesn't like him and he still probably wants more gun control than um, most second amendment rights activists do. But do, do you think this issue might help bring people into leftist movements who might be more culturally conservative? Like I'm, I'm always racking my brain trying to figure out how we can, turn right populists or right libertarians into left populists if there's any way to do that or or independents or people who consider themselves not to identify with either party
1: it's difficult so reaching out to right-wing gun owners was sort of a secondary goal uh, when the SRA was founded Um, we've tried a little bit but it's very difficult Um, there's really there's really two populations of gun owners. There's the people who own guns, you know, as a hobby for sport, for serious self-defense, right? Who, who own guns, you know, because, because they enjoy shooting them or because they have a practical use for them. And those people, I think, are reachable. Then you have the people who own firearms as an identity. And that identity is tied up in this extreme right wing view, like I said, the people who are talking about boogaloo, the people who are joining right wing militias, the people who are you know uh or the or the people online who are parts of these sorts of uh communities like it's very difficult because they're they're is this right-wing media ecosystem that basically serves as a bulwark against any honest conversation between right and left. They basically, like, some of these outlets, when um, when they've talked about the SRA, some of them have outright engaged in libel um, to the point that we've considered suing some of them. Um, we've decided so far that it's not uh, financially worth it. But there is this right-wing media ecosystem and this uh, sort of ideology among right-wing extremist gun owners where there is just this wall of anti-communism and this wall of hatred for minorities that they're completely unwilling to engage. And I think that those people are a, at least um, in terms of people who are active participants in gun discourse, I think those people do make up a majority of it. And it makes it very difficult to reach across the aisle and speak to them of course you do have a lot of people who are not parts of that online discourse who are not parts of those communities Uh, liberal gun owners independent gun owners old school just regular slightly racist grandpa conservatives who are reachable and we've uh, reached out to some of them and made some progress some inroads gotten some people to consider our point of view honestly but you know, at the same time, we're also not a counter-recruitment organization, and our primary focus is on creating a safe space for leftists and members of marginalized communities to learn about self-defense and and firearms. And we don't necessarily want to bring in people with conservative or reactionary social views, who might present a threat to those people or who might make them uncomfortable. So for us, it's not really a priority with the SRA, um, although it would be nice if we could make some progress talking to them at least.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I I was going to ask you um, also, that kind of ties into this, um, like how should the left interface with the gun rights movement, given that its most prominent prominent representatives right now are some of the most reactionary and pro-capitalist people and organizations that you could think of?
1: it's difficult um and it's something the sra is actively working on i think before we can interface with the guns right gun rights movement um outside of some of the uh more left-leaning groups like we have we've we've talked with people in liberal gun club armed equality um you know a, a few pink pistols chapters that aren't run by libertarians like there are some places where we can interface with the uh, gun rights community but at this point i think it's really necessary for us to be able to grow the number of people in the armed left to uh, get credibility as you know firearms rights advocates i think it's important for us to build organizational capacity um, to be able to engage in you know one thing the sra is working on um is we're working on creating uh, essentially pamphlets that we can send to legislators and uh, media outlets that will outline the SRA's views on firearms ownership. We're not interested in lobbying or donating to political candidates. We're not even endorsing anyone at this point. Um, But we we do want to be able to enter that world to an extent, that sort of electoral realm of gun control discourse at least to be able to have a presence to make our arguments heard. And I think it's really a matter of playing the long game, building the numbers, building the organizational capacity, building the relationships in order to be able to become a legitimate part of the guns rights movement in the United States, because it is such a small, you know, thing so far, but such a, it's such a young movement, at least on the scale that it exists right now.
0: Yeah. uh, I mean, it, it was, it was good to read that um, response to the... Okay, so for people who don't know, there was a rally for the Second Amendment in Richmond, Virginia recently, and there were some right-wing militia groups there as well as some members of the armed left. Um, Vice wrote a very sensationalistic story about how uh, anti Antifa people were like marching alongside uh, fascists in Richmond for gun rights. And um, Richmond, this was it Richmond Hills, Seven Hills, Seven Hills Antifa released a statement saying we stand against these groups. We stand against racism and homophobia and transphobia and all of the things that these right wingers hold dear and we will never be be on their side Um, like I guess I'm wondering like how how do you deal with that kind of uh, coverage and those kinds of strange bedfellows as you try to make the case for a responsible armed left that can influence policy
1: well, the way that the uh, DC Metro chapter of the SRA approached it was that they did not go to the, um, they did not go to the rally on uh, January twentieth where all the right wing groups were there. Instead, they waited for that to pass and then went the next weekend um, to the Virginia House of Delegates and spoke with legislators. Then they had their own lobby day that was separate from the far right where they could make their case on their own. Um, and they were recognized on the floor by a uh, uh, Rep Lee J. Carter and I think that that's a much better way to approach it um, I don't think it's worthwhile to march alongside right wing or fascist militia groups um, I do think that there is some value in counter recruitment John Brown Gun Club does some counter recruitment and I think that's worthwhile work um, and that's something that they're more set up to do than the SRA is but uh in general I think that for the meantime like in until until the uh until we can sort of separate the moderate like actual gun rights supporters away from the fascist militia people until we can sort of you know drive a wedge in that community I think it's more worthwhile for us to sort of stand on our own and make our voices heard separately um and like you said Seven Hills Antifa uh, Vice really misrepresented them by saying that they were there marching alongside them. Uh, it's a really crappy article by Vice and about what I expect from most mainstream media outlets. Um, what they actually did was individuals from that group had the option to go there on their own, you know, without necessarily supporting those groups. And SRA members, I'm not sure if anyone did, but SRA members were, you know, perfectly free to go there on their own. But as as an organization, I think it's important to keep some distance.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there there can be no quarter given to fascists in any any scenario, really. Um, I I also think it's hard sometimes, especially with Trump having taken over the Republican Party, to separate out the real fascists from people who are just conservative for whatever reason and you know maybe some people don't make a huge distinction there um i i certainly wouldn't want to have to decide who is really dangerous and who's just kind of uh an asshole or grew up in a conservative culture
1: one way that i put it in the last sra podcast was you know uh you know the, the the person running a gun show might not be a nazi but if he allows a nazi to set up a booth to sell lugers and iron crosses and nazi memorabilia then he's making space for the far right and he's enabling them and so if someone has power and they're you or if they have power or if they have a platform and they're using that power or platform to um to uplift fascism to you know make space for fascism that comes a point where I think you can call that person a fascist or a fascist enabler. Whereas if it's just an ordinary person who's conservative and has reactionary views, but doesn't necessarily have institutional power or a platform, then I don't think it's necessarily useful to treat them as a fascist, unless they're actively standing alongside them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes a whole lot of sense. Like I, I listened to that episode and you're talking about how the right needs its own anti-fascist movement to get the fascists yeah. out. <laughs> I'm li- yeah. I'm like,
1: they, they need that. They're probably not going to do it, but they need it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm like, get on that Republicans. Not that any Republicans are listening to the Antifada probably. So I like to end on a call to action. Usually on the show, try to keep people from getting depressed. Um, what can people do who want to get involved in the SRA? Can I join the SRA? Is there one here in New York? Um, what What should people do who are interested but don't really know much about uh, guns or gun culture, or perhaps mutual aid and community defense, if that's what they're interested in?
1: For sure, so the SRA, uh, we have chapters all over the country, most major cities, um, and a lot of smaller ones as well. Um, SRA membership is open to any uh, permanent resident of the United States, um, as long as you aren't uh, active duty or reserve law enforcement. Um, you don't have a history of you know domestic violence or fascist views or whatever. If you are you know a leftist or a member of a minority group and you're interested in self defense, you can join the SRA at socialistra.org membership. We have annual dues of $25 per year. Um, And uh, that'll get you access to our internal platforms. We can hook you up with your local chapter. Our chapters engage in range days and various firearms training events. Um, Some of our chapters do street medic training or, you know, emergency medical response for gunshot wounds. Um, Some of our chapters do mutual aid as well. Um, And... uh, we organize occasionally nas- national disaster relief efforts like for hurricanes or other large disasters. Um, yeah, so you can definitely get involved that way. If you're interested in something a little more radical, I would steer you towards Redneck Revolt or the John Brown Gun Club or towards some of the uh, other independent groups that have maybe split off of those uh, larger organizations. Um, you know, just get in, take a look around what's available in your area. But if you're interested in education, uh, definitely the SRA is probably a good avenue for you. You don't need to own a firearm to join. You don't need any, you know, uh, background or experience with firearms. Um, you know, more experienced members are there to teach you. They're there to help you. Might They might ask you to pitch in for ammunition if you're shooting a lot. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a community sort of uh, effort. It's a community environment. And if you join and you, if you want your chapter to engage in mutual aid, but they aren't, Treat it like the DSA, you know, organize the uh, organize your comrades and uh, make make the change you want to see in the world on the large scale and the small.
0: Word. Uh, Thank you so much for doing this. I feel like I asked you too many questions about guns and not enough questions about mutual aid. Perhaps I'm part of the problem. But, uh... I think it, well, we are the
1: <laughs> we are a rifle association, and it's very fair. I think it's and it's conversations that need to be had. I've, I've definitely enjoyed the talk so far.
0: All right. Well, that's great. Thank you so much. Um, and if I'm ever in Los Angeles, I hope you will take me to a gun range.
1: Absolutely. Just drop me a line.
0: Amazing. All right. Once again, this has been Faye Eckler of the Socialist Rifle Association. On the Antipoda, signing off.
2: Bye-bye. Solidarity forever. Hell yeah. have to answer to. Oh, the guns <laughs> of Brickstep. My name feels good. And your life, you like it well. But surely your time will come. As in heaven, as in hell, you see He feels like Ivan, born under the Brixton sun His game is called surviving At the end of the harder they come You know, it means no mercy They got him with a gun No need for the Black Maria. Goodbye to the Brixton sun.